Oh, I'm Suzanne, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Suzanne. And I'm a nervous wreck. <laughs> you know, poor old Steve last night, he's just, isn't he, isn't he cool? You know, he's the shyest little thing, and he says something he's funny as can do. And that's good, thank you. Um, I'm hoping I'll knock it over. And he said to me, just real quietly, he said, have you ever spoken to a large group? <laughs> and I said, well, the last time I spoke to, uh, I was thinking about that, last time I spoke to a large group was 97. And it was, uh, we got to go to um, Palm Springs in California. And we spoke for the um, Dog on the Roof group. And it was a wonderful group. They had a they had a big uh, conference, Christmas type conference. And we went up there at a, at a camp and Oh, it was absolutely wonderful. And, um, but then I thought, I was okay with that. I was nervous for that too. And I was okay after that was over and everything. And then I, then I began to think about the book I ran up. And I thought, oh my God, I'm coming to Cincinnati, the home of Venus Flytrap and WKRP. <laughs> I mean, y'all don't know. I watch that all the time. They have all the reruns at home. And, so I was I was pretty impressed with that and getting a little nervous. And then I saw the program. Clancy is speaking at this meeting. And I thought, oh, my God. I never thought I'd have to speak at a place where Clancy talked. Clancy's like God. You know, he's come to Charleston, West Virginia, and he's spoken. And he's, in all sincerity, he's a wonderful, wonderful uh, carrier of the message. And um, has I have always really enjoyed his talks, and I feel like it's a real privilege, really, to be here as a part of this. And I got really nervous, but then last night, I saw the gong show through all this, and I thought, if those people can get up here and do that, I can get up here and do this. So thank you for making me feel at home and at ease, and you guys were hysterical. I love the girls with the little noses, the chicken noses. And those two guys with their hairy faces and blonde heads and boxer shorts. I mean, that was, did, did everybody get to see that? That was really the most, I mean, you really missed something if you didn't get to see that. It was, it was fabulous. And, um, I remember when I first got to AA that, um, um, the big deal or the hard thing to do, and it was wonderful in that first year, we had dances and to go to dances, and dance and not be drinking was was not easy. And uh, I remember um, being uh, escorted to the floor with, you know, some old timer would take you out on the floor and dance with you. And have starting to have fun sober is, uh, and George talk, had talked about that a lot last night, about having fun sober. Um, I've had uh, a wonderful um, journey in recovery. And um, I'm one of those people, oh, I probably ought to tell you, I love the way you've announced your sobriety days, that through the grace of God and the fellowship and uh, wonderful sponsorship, mostly by, by, by individuals, of course, and by the wonderful people and groups, all the help I've got from, from them. Uh, I've been sober since April 11, 1981, and I'm really happy to be here. And I've been so impressed by um, Peggy's lead. You gave the most wonderful story. 
She's so funny. I just thought she was great. But boy, she had a big message squished in there in between the laughing with some really wonderful things. And you talked about um, losing somebody in this program. And um, there was a lady by the name of Betsy Ray who was my first sponsor. And it's so ironic that she would be my first sponsor. This was long before I became ill. And she was a polio victim. And uh, she's about 10 years older than me and had been caught in that polio epidemic, you know, before we all got those little sugar cues with the vaccine and everything uh, and the, the shots. And she was a wonderful woman. And she taught me so much. She said, you just cannot judge someone's insides by their outsides. People used to initially feel sorry for for Betsy because she was in a wheelchair and um, totally confined to uh, to a wheelchair. And she said that they could only see. And at Monday, she got to know her. The joy uh, uh, that was in her was just amazing. And she was such a wonderful sponsor. And we lost Betsy last year. And that's a real, real hard thing to go through. And I so identified with with your story. And she um, she was so beautiful. She knew she knew about six months before she died. She had lung cancer and terrible smoker. <clears throat> she smoked, smoked, smoked. Her whole family did. <clears throat> Excuse me. And but she knew about six months before she died that she was going to go. She was so wonderful. She contacted everybody and told them she loved them and, and, and very gently told them what was happening in her life and, and, and that she just wanted to, you know, communicate how much she loved us. And, and so she made a beautiful transition. And, um, then I had another experience in AA that was very much like what she talked about. There was a, a young woman, um, and her husband, they were like, he was, he was relatively young. I mean, his late 30s and he, uh, contracted hepatitis C. And, our yeah, and he, Alex, got really sick and with that and he was hospitalized and they had just had a baby maybe, uh, six months before. But the thing that, uh, we lost Alex. They couldn't, they tried to get him up for a, uh, liver transplant and just, we had, we lost him. And, but the people, and the most wonderful thing about that was, and, and was his wife, and there were people with her constantly, 24 hours a day. He was in the hospital for a long time, and she had this child, and a home, and, a, and an older child as well as this baby. And, um, there were people with her constantly at the hospital, there were people holding her hand all the time, too. And they just split up the duties. Well, I'm going to take the child, and I'll do, I'll do the I'll do the housekeeping, and what do you want from the store? I mean, she did nothing. People were there to help her through everything. And it was, um, it was the most incredibly wonderful thing to watch. You are not alone. We are never alone. And that just, not only you just... Are we together at meetings? But we were all, are always together. And, and people are there and this program will be there for you. No matter what. And I have so much confidence and, and I think occasionally, gee, what if this happens? I think I know who to call on. 
there's always somebody in this program that can help me and that would be available and willing to help me. And uh, to watch that, she Anne said that her mother, who lived in Florida, called and said, oh, she said, I know you just feel so horrible being away from all your family and everything. And she said, oh, no, Mom, I have my family right here. And God, what a wonderful thing that is. I'm so off, often so overwhelmed with the care and concern and love of people in this program. And uh, it's been dished, dished out for me uh, all over the place. When I first came to AA, I, um, I was uh, healthy. <laughs> um, I was 34 and uh, healthy and looked pretty good. And uh, was married to um, this really boring guy named Joe. <laughs> and um, we kind of fought a lot, and he drank a lot. I mean, he wasn't an alcoholic, and that's surprising. I learned later he was not an alcoholic. Uh, I was, but um, he drank a whole lot, and we drank together a whole lot, and we were high school sweethearts. And um, so we just kind of had to get married, you know. We went through that college, and then we got married. And I mean, we didn't have to get married, but you know, um, we we were on that track. And um, he, we both went to college, and um, went went to school in Memphis, Tennessee. I was oh, by the way, I ought to backtrack. I was in Greenville, Mississippi at the time. My father had been, um, an, I was a Navy brat, and so we traveled everywhere. I mean, and we were at that time in um, in the history of the services then where you, you moved about every year and a half. So I was always the new kid and always never felt at home. And um, that that has been a, a terrible problem, you know, for was for me all, all along. And he was, he was in the uh, Navy for like... 30 years, and he, had, he, the place that we ended up when he got out of the Navy was Greenville, Mississippi. We moved from Honolulu, Hawaii, in the winter, to Greenville, Mississippi. God was at a transition. I was in the sixth grade, and I was chunky, and I was, again, the new kid, and um, so feeling so out of place. And this is little Mississippi. I mean, it's little Greenville. And not only was I in little Greenville, but I was in the little Catholic school in Greenville. And uh, interestingly enough, they had white Catholic schools and black Catholic schools in Mississippi at that time. And I thought, I really couldn't quite reconcile that. I mean, I wasn't from from the South, so I wasn't hadn't been reared in that um, prejudice. And so I didn't quite understand how the Catholic Church could, you know, sort of <laughs> reconcile that either. But they they did what they had to do, I guess, to get people get people to church and get people in a Catholic school. And that's where I met my uh, later to be husband, and we drank, and everybody drank, and um, that's what you did. I was fourteen, first time I took a drink, and I went over to the Brophy's house. They were transplanted. Philadelphians, and they all spoke with this real Irish accent. And these are, and they had like 12 kids, many of whom had been born and raised in Mississippi. 
but they all spoke with an Irish accent. <laughs> Not even an Irish accent with a drawl, but it was an Irish accent. You know, like they talk in Philadelphia. It was really, really unusual. And um, you go over there at, at uh, we'd go over at 10 o'clock in the morning, Mr. Brovey was walking around with a, a pitcher of, of uh, martinis. And I just never seemed unusual that that's the way they were. Mrs. Uh, Mrs. Brophy would get mad and throw if Mr. Brophy would not buy her a new dining room set, she'd just throw it down the steps. So he'd have to get her one. And um, I mean, these these were my first friends. They were. <laughs> this is the family, and that's where I drank the first time. I went to spend the night party there. I'm trying to get around to this, and um, drank Purple Passion. And, um, which I remember when I talked in California, they all went, oh, like they had heard of it, I guess. Uh, but nobody else has ever heard of Purple Passion. It's, it's, uh, it's, um, vodka and grape juice. Lovely. Lovely. It's in. Uh, I, I then graduated after much practice at that to something real sophisticated called bourbon and coke. And, um, I never did learn how to drink. I um uh, when I when I was 14 and this is honest to God truth again I was 20 years drinking. Every time I picked up a drink, I drank till I got drunk and threw up. That was my history with drinking. Never did I um I never drank very much. I also couldn't hold my liquor. I mean I couldn't drink very much, so it didn't take long to get me really drunk and really sick and so I mean I wouldn't even really make it through the evening most people I knew drank too much had horrible hangovers threw up in the morning stuff like that I threw up from the beginning like that night later that night all night and and often the times the next morning and I just went back forth the next day I'd had such a good time (laughs) night before I mean and I mean who has how could I have problems with step two you know I wasn't crazy, you know, but you know, when you have, when you, um, do things like that, and that's, that's been my, that's been my, um, life. Just kind of going to get it right the next time. Keep doing the same thing, expecting different results. And I learned that. I, that was in my life. I was experiencing that and living that. And, uh, in drinking, that's what I did. If I could just eat bread, or bread with butter, or, um, God, what were the other things? Oh, if I, it was the Coke. The Coke is what was making me sick. All that syrup in there. If I could learn to drink it with water, which I hated, um, then maybe I, you know, I tried all this, I tried switching, you know, to different things. I didn't like beer. Um, I just, I liked those drinks with the little umbrellas and stuff like that, and, that's hard to do at a football game, so you've got to get, <laughs> so you've got to get something that's real portable, like a bourbon and coke. But um, anyway, I went through that. I, all of it was a total humiliating experience, and I swear my whole story is just one humiliating experience after another. And because um, I couldn't, I mean, I was throwing up everywhere. It's hard. It's really hard to maintain your composure. <laughs> When you're vomiting, it's just, uh, it's just, and I mean, it really is. It's, it's tough. And I, I was living in Mississippi, 
and you were supposed to be, I was trying to be a debutante. Do they know about debutantes in Cincinnati? But they had, down in Mississippi, they did. And um, it's not cool to be, you know, it's just not, well, not cool isn't the word. It's not gracious to be, to be ill. And so, but I mean, I've thrown up in uh, lots of different places. And uh, I came to AA, I wanted to quit throwing up. Most people come to quit drinking, but I just come to quit throwing up. Um, the, um, well, funny, it's so silly. The, um, but you know, I never drank every day. I never drank every day. I was basically a weekend binge drinker. And again, like I said, I couldn't hold it, so I really didn't drink too much because I just couldn't couldn't keep it down. And um, But I kept trying. I really gave it a good try. I wish y'all know that. <laughs> but I tried really hard for 20 years to figure out how to do it, and I never did. And um, it got, it became a problem um, after I... Um, I mean, it wasn't bad in Mississippi because we were having prohibition. So at the time, we were the last state in the union to um, make alcohol illegal. I mean, make alcohol legal. So needless to say, anybody could get it. Uh, it didn't matter how old you were. If you could reach the bootlegger's window, you could get get something to drink and uh, get some alcohol. And... Uh, and we all drank as kids, and a lot of uh, a lot of serious things about that. I mean, we had a huge number of kids die in wrecks, car wrecks, driving in Mississippi drunk. And uh, of course, we've got a lot of drunk people dr- driving drunk these days, getting getting killed. But as teenagers, we had a high high percentage of them, and uh, it never. I don't know why. It just never dawned on us not to drink. It was just a way of life, and. Uh, we did, the whole idea was to try, like George said, trying to, that's a West Virginia thing, trying to drink like a gentleman. We just tried to drink and not get in trouble. And um, we'd go water skiing and, um, and, and just amazing all the things we did and all the risks we took and all the close close calls, really, physically that we had. But um, I am... Um, I went from Mississippi to, uh, went to school in Memphis, as I said before. Went to, um, undergraduate school there. I majored in accounting. And, uh, which is really a boring thing to major in. It's not bad once you get out working in it, but God, it's really boring when you're, when you're, and I went to school in three years, which is really, really stupid. One of the dumber things that I ever did. I mean, you don't have any free time. You go, Heavy load. I don't know why I did that, but um, you know, like you know, anything worth doing is worth overdoing. That whole thing. Um, um, but I went. I wanted to get through. I was in a hurry. I wanted to get, get through so I could get out there and work. God. And I wonder about being a stupid alcoholic. You know, I mean, I wanted to do that. So, um, and the thing about that I've seen about alcoholics. And I bet you all can uh, confirm this: is that we're a pretty talented crowd. On the whole, uh, we really are. We're smart, and we get away with all this stuff because we're smart. <laughs> we can function at 85% or at 50% and be 
usually better than the than most of the other people around. So we get away with it, which is so harmful, so harmful, because it takes so long for the consequences to develop, because we can get away with it for so long. And um, that was true for me. When I was always a new kid, um, since you didn't know me and you didn't like me, and I was new and having trouble fitting in, I couldn't join, so I beat you. And it wasn't hard. You know, how many kids do you know in elementary school that are really trying to make good grades? I mean, nobody <laughs> does that in elementary school. And they don't really do it too much. Back then, they didn't, didn't do it too much in high school. Now, my daughters, uh, you know, years later, were, they were in very competitive school systems. So people were doing it then. But back then, we weren't. We were just trying to drink and have a good time and that sort of thing. And the only way I fit in was, was drinking. And, um, um, but worked real hard on beating them. And it wasn't hard to accomplish. So accomplishing was just part, kind of part of my life. So I went through school and did okay, did, did well in undergraduate school. Really did pretty well with all the drinking. I just think back on it now. God, how did I do that? But, um, so I got out that and, um, married the high school sweetheart and, uh, then we began to move. He decided he wanted to go. He went one year as an accountant, and then he just—he also was an accountant. There's some. There's going to be a pattern developing here. You'll see that. And um, um, he went to graduate school in Colorado. Went out there to get his MBA. He went out. He chose Colorado because he liked to fish. I kept thinking, that's probably not the best way to choose your graduate program is where you want to fish, but what the heck. So he went out there, and I helped him get to get his master's. I mean, I typed all his papers and wrote most of them. He had terrible grammar. He was real smart, but he had terrible grammar. I think he screwed up the second or third grade and never quite got that part, you know. But anyway, so we did that, and... um he got his, his got his uh, MBA, and I started having children. I had um, my daughter Laura, and um, she she's so beautiful. She's uh, 27 today, and uh, her, where we lived in Colorado, by the way, uh, we lived in Denver, and then uh, when he was in school, and then we we got a house out in the suburbs, and we lived in Littleton, Colorado. Columbine was not there then, but you can imagine my sh- shock to hear that that happened in that little middle class, everything's just perfect. If you want to pick a nice safe place for your kids to go to school, that was it. So I was just, I was really shocked that that's where, I had, where that had happened. And, um, but anyway, went there, had a beautiful home, and and uh which was kind of a history oh by the way joe was real rich and uh that was uh, a real nice part to that i didn't know that by honest god i didn't know that before we got married um it was only after we got married we started getting these gifts for the wedding of entire tea sets in sterling silver and five hundred dollar checks from his uh Relatives, I thought, God, God, George, does your family have money? I'm Joe. George, excuse me. Joe. <laughs> We've done, gone through that before. I've done, God. 
<laughs> I didn't say that to George, by the way, because his family didn't have money. So, uh, anyway, so we had a lot of money and um, uh, a lot of everything I ever wanted. I could have more than. I mean, my parents were were lower middle class. These people had a lot of money, and in the deep south, and all that sort of thing going on down there. But um, anyway, we went to Memphis, and um, we went to school, and then we went out to Colorado, and we bought a house. And we were in the position of being able to get whatever we wanted. So we had this nice little house out there, a really pretty home, and we had uh, our first daughter, Laura. And then... Not too long after that, uh, we moved again. And we moved from uh, Colorado to Chattanooga, Tennessee. Now, Chattanooga is where my parents live. Now, they aren't from there. They're from, they're Kentuckians. They're both born and raised in Louisville, Kentucky. And she's one of nine and he's one of six. And I have like the most ungodly number of cousins. And I don't even know. I don't even know them. We we since we didn't live there, we'd we'd float through and we'd see this mob of people I was related to and then we'd float back out. So I didn't I didn't have this sense of roots. Being not being uh being a navy brat, you don't have that sense of continuity in your life and that sense of I belong here and I'm part of this and I've been to school with these people since I was in kindergarten and and um I'm okay because we're all okay because we've been together all this time and all of that. I didn't have any of that. And so I had a lot of insecurity about that. And um, uh, and it wasn't until I arrived in West Virginia, surprisingly, uh, that I began to have this feeling. But anyway, um, so Joe and I moved to Chattanooga where I had my second daughter, Anna. And so now we've got two little kids, and something happens. His mother died. Now, his mother was extremely wealthy, and so we inherited, we inherited, he inherited all this money. And so he decided something really brilliant. He's now he's worked. He's got this uh, beautiful degree in financing, and he had, he had an undergraduate with a CPA with an MBA in finance. And his brother was a stockbroker in... Um, lived in West Virginia. This is how we get to the West Virginia place. Anyway, so the two of them together, I think they inherited about almost about over half a million. They decided to take that money and make their fortune bigger by going into business in the construction business in uh, West Virginia right before the big crash in the construction <laughs> industry. Uh, I kept saying, wanting to say things like, you're a stockbroker, really successful, and you're wonderful at finance and accounting. Why do you want to do this? Why do you want to build houses? You don't know how to build houses. And their big thought was, we're so smart, we'll hire all the talent to do it, which they did, which meant they had got no money themselves out of what they built and managed to lose all of that money. Uh, well, I was really ticked with that. You know, I, um, I kept thinking, why didn't you at least put like 
50000 in the bank and then blow the rest, but he didn't do that. They just were, I mean, really, most amazing thing, just the most amazing thing. So we're, by this time, we've gone to Chattanooga. We moved from Chattanooga to West Virginia, which I didn't know where it was, but we found out, and we got there, and um, they started this business. And I was I was drinking a bit more at this time, more longer in this business and all this was going, but still, never every day. I don't think I was ever physically addicted to alcohol, but tell you, I was, I was emotionally really needed it. And um, we they lost all that money, and in the meantime, they started this business. I'm gonna go back just a bit, and Agnes came in as our secretary. And Agnes was really pushy. I mean, she was really pushy. She pushed me around. And she, I mean, I'm her boss and she's pushing me around and, and him, you know, we, I guess we just weren't real assertive. And, um, and Agnes was very assertive. And, uh, about six months into her working there, she, she asked me, we were doing accounting work. In addition to this concern, because I had I had got a degree in accounting at the time, so um, she said I need I need to tell you something. Will you come to lunch with me? I'm, well, we did, and uh, she handed me this little chip, this medallion, and she said it had a one on it. Well, she had been a year sober, and they were wanting to start. And I didn't know what Alcoholics Anonymous was. I mean, how can this be possible? You can't imagine how many drunks there were in the family. I guess because we didn't live live real close. I mean, we just heard little vague things like, gee, Aunt Peg's just took a bath in her clothes. Ha ha. And, um, or Uncle, Uncle, um, Gene is on the roof. Dancing on the roof. I mean, I mean, this, I'm not making that up. That's really true. And, but they never ever mentioned that there was this thing called a disease called alcoholism. So I had no, no concept of it. And, um, anyway, so Agnes shows me your chip and she says they want to start a, a club, a serenity club in, um, down in Dunbar and they need someone to do a 501c3 fund, a tax exempt falling. So, I said, well, I've never done one, but I'll, you know, I'll see what I can do. I'll look into it to find out what it's about. And it was, um, a 501c3 is real, pretty simple. It's just real informative in nature, you know. They ask questions like, how are you organized? And, um, so I had to read about, I had to read all this literature about the AA, and the more I read, I read the 12 steps, and I thought, God, that's a beautiful program for those people. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? That sounds so wonderful. And I just was immediately drawn to the, I think, to the uplifting spirituality of, of the literature that I'd read. But it was a little bit difficult to answer some of those really technical questions because we aren't organized. We're just sort of, you know, we just kind of hang together. I mean, how do you put that on paper? But we, but, um, you know, trusted servants and all that. But I learned that lingo and I learned how to figure out how to answer those questions. And I had, um, Rough drafts were done, and the people that were the people who were organizing this 
came to my office. And, um, you know, I just don't know what to expect when you're expecting about six of those out, those people in your office. And uh, God knows what they were going to look like. I had no idea. Um, sort of the idea of tails and horns and stuff kind of comes to mind. But they were the most beautiful. Um, that was my first acquaintance with uh, people in this program. They were the most beautiful people. And they... Um, the only thing is they smoked a lot and drank a lot of coffee. I remember that. <laughs> so we got that done, and the uh, Serenity Club got their 501c3, and they got their tax-exempt status, and they went into business. And, um, and that's still, Serenity Club's still in Dunbar, West Virginia, and they uh, have made a grand contribution to to, to uh, recovery in our area. And I'm still today, I mean, that's where I started and which wasn't long after I did this tax exempt. And I love what God does. God didn't didn't um, just drag me in there um, off the streets. He, he was just really very gracious, you know, like a nice southern gentleman. He told me, let me learn all about AA through my work in an extremely non-threatening way. And um, since I'm really scared all the time, and um, particularly then when I'm still drinking, I um, let me learn about it in a way that I could take it into my heart. And then a few months later, when I came home and uh, one more time drunk, I had been in some kind of board meeting for something, and I came home and I was so... I had been really, really way too much. I had, I came home and I had a fifth on the, I discovered the next morning, a fifth on the seat in my car. And I didn't know how I got home and I didn't know what that was doing there. And, um, but I get all these problems with, with the business and it was, things were getting really crummy at home because of that and just generally. And uh, I called up Agnes, of all people, and I said, I can't take it anymore. And I don't know why I called her. I mean, I wasn't thinking, I can't drink anymore. I just think I can't take life anymore. I just hate this. And to tell you the truth, I never thought drinking was the problem. Again, like I said, I never never drank every day. Didn't lose my family, didn't lose a car, didn't lose the house, didn't lose a job. Didn't lose anything except, as I later learned myself. And I didn't like myself too much anyway at that time. I had I had real bad self-esteem. My self-esteem was just in the gutter. And um, but the thing that really I really really wanted when I came here was um, to be a good mother. I had to the one two precious things in my life were my daughters. They were four and eight when I came to AA. And um, Agnes Agnes made me go to a meeting Monday. I thought I'd just hit the flu by Monday time. Monday came around, but I tell you, she's pushy. She dragged me. And we went. And I would never have gone on my own. I had too much of a chicken. I would never have gotten up and gone to a meeting with total strangers particularly those people. Uh, I would never have done that on my own. So she took me to my first meeting, and everybody sat around there at the Edgewood meeting, and they said, I'm so-and-so, and I'm an alcoholic. 
and it got around to me, and I was trying to hide in the corner. And but you know, us new people can't stand out. You know, people notice you right away. You don't realize that when you're there, but uh, they notice you right away. And she called on me, and I said, "I'm Suzanne, and I don't know what I am." And the truth is, I did not know what an alcoholic was. I had no idea. And like I said, I thought drinking was not the problem. Uh, it didn't seem to be. It was all those other things in my life. Him, losing the money, um, the fact we couldn't get along, and a bunch of other, other list of outside influences that I'm sure if we could have gotten that sort of straightened around, we'd all be okay. But um, it didn't. It didn't work that way. And uh, so when I came to, but I came to AA and I walked in that room. And after I'd said I don't know what I am, and they closed the meeting, everybody started coming up to me. And as we do here in this wonderful, blessed program, we open our arms to each other. And we say, oh, it's so wonderful to see you. And you know they mean it. You really know they mean it. And for the first time in my life, I really felt immediately with a group of strangers that I fit in. I had no idea why I felt that way. But I was going to come back because I liked it. I liked that. I wanted to continue to have that sense of whatever was happening and this isn't even rational thought. It's just like, you know, of course, Agnes already had a list this long. We're going here tomorrow in this place. She was already going to drag me around everywhere. Anyway, but I was happy to go because I'd found something I must have really, really needed. Uh, I know I needed, and um, I still need today. But um, so we would, I began then to come to these meetings and to begin to learn about what was going on in my life. But I had a real problem in the beginning. The biggest problem is I heard stories, horror stories. And they were things like where I, you know people had, had been um, had to go to jail for for what had happened maybe with, with uh, their drinking and they had lost their families and many people had lost their children. Oh, what a horror story that would be. What a horrible thing. They lost their kids. They lost their business. They'd, they'd been living under a bridge and just horrible circumstances. And I thought, and those are, that's what I heard. I mean, there were other people there saying different things, but those are the things, the shocking things that came to my mind. Is to, this is I'm still trying to find out what an alcoholic is. This is an alcoholic. And honest to God, my first thought was, I I don't qualify. Those things haven't happened to me. Maybe I'm not an alcoholic. I mean, can't imagine that. Gee, maybe I'm not an alcoholic. Yeah. Um, that's a little that's a little bizarre. If you think about it, if you really sit down and think about it. But for some reason, I don't all know what reason, what the reason is. But I wanted to be here, and I wanted to be a part of it. So it was a journey for me to see where I fit in to alcoholism or how it was in uh, I actually had the disease so I had to learn about the disease concept and I had to learn a wonderful man uh, John M uh, just a real character I met uh, when I then started going to the Serenity Club which was available then 
now that we've gotten the tax exam status for it and everything. He helped me. He would, he would, uh, he would, we'd talk afterwards. And he explained something really important to me. And if you're new and just getting started and maybe you don't have the normal story, maybe your story's more like mine. He said, it's like an elevator. He said, and the elevator only goes one way, <laughs> unfortunately. He said, it goes down. And he said, but you can get off anywhere you want. You can get off this place. You don't have to have done it. All those things are all those things happen to you for you to have the disease of alcoholism and to find recovery here. And John is such a such a sweet friend and became a wonderful friend after that. But that was so helpful to me because I learned two things. I probably really am an alcoholic, which means I can be here and belong here. And most importantly, that if I get back on that elevator, it'll go down. And down there's where all those other Really horrible things were happening, but I—I I mean, I—it's not to say I didn't suffer. Uh, I've had a real, real time um, gaining emotional sobriety has been a particularly difficult thing for me. And um, anyway, so I stayed with John, and John really helped me a lot with that. I uh, was—I had, like I said, just walked up, walked into them, I didn't go to treatment or anything. But about 14 months, I started getting really sick, and. Um, having some kind of panic attacks. I heard somebody the other day, I think it was a lady in Ireland, talk, gave this talk about it, and she was talking about having panic attacks. In fact, I identified with everything that woman said here in this other country, talking that it's exact, we have the exact same stories, all of us do. And um, so I went to, I went off, a friend of mine, her name was Suzanne, said, have you been to treatment? And I said, no, but I haven't. I haven't started drinking again. She said, whatever's wrong with you is your alcoholism. And what she meant by that, only took me about a year and a half to figure that out. She said, what that means is that whatever's wrong with me, a solution is available through the 12 steps of this program. No matter what the problem. And it doesn't have to just be not taking a drink. It can be not, um, it can be dealing with anything or anybody in your life. The steps I have found work on everything. Anytime I'm uncomfortable with life, I can approach it like, okay, step one, what can I do? You know, am I paralyzed over this? If it's a problem, I'm always paralyzed over it. You know, it wouldn't be a problem if I could do anything about it. So it's not hard to figure out. And, um, and it's making me crazy, that step two. And then step three. Oh my God, step three has been the most wonderful thing in my whole life. Well, you know what to do? You have to turn your will and your life over to a power. Well, God, that's God. You know, I'm a raised Catholic. Did I mention that? Better of the CIA, Catholic Irish alcoholic, you know. And, um, so I, I had that problem with God because I'm, I, I'm, I don't know many Catholics who grew up thinking God is this loving, wonderful thing. Most people grew up thinking they were like the nuns. Punishing, you know, you're going to get it. No matter what you, if you, if you don't fly right, you're going to get it. And uh, so I had trouble with that. And that was a struggle for me in the first few months. Um, I began, I really grasped onto the powerlessness, the idea of powerlessness. I was really relieved. Because, boy, I was tired. I wasn't getting it. I couldn't fix everything or be everything to everybody. And I was really worn out with that. So I began to, I understood that. 
But that's a little scary if you think, oh, God, you know, if I can't really rely on myself, what do I do? And I can't rely on God because I'm not good enough to do that. You know, so what do I do? You're really in the middle of nowhere. Well, I talked, of course, you come, keep coming to meetings. You always got to keep coming to meetings. And uh, I met some women who were in OA, and they used to come to open meetings at the club on the weekends. And it turned out that I had a lady, through a very long story, circumstances, this woman, I had, by the way, kicked my husband out at this point, and, or he had left, and so I had room in the house. And uh, Mary came and lived with me for a while because she was separated from her husband at the time. And she was a member of OA. She was a Jewish member of OA. And she taught my daughters all about uh, the whole Jewish tradition of Hanukkah and uh, the lighting of the candles. And, and it was beautiful. I'm so delighted that they that we all got to enjoy uh, uh, her faith and the way she practiced her faith. And, but her faith did not interfere with her finding relief through a program, uh, uh, our same program of recovery in uh, Overeaters Anonymous. And she had some friends come over one time, and they were all talking about their higher power and God as they understood them. And um, one girl said, Suzanne, you, I, you know, I had mentioned something I was having a problem with, and she said, you, describe your describe your um, concept of God. Well, I had the old traditional, oh, he's punishing God, he's going to go to hell, he's going to get me, all of that. She said, well, she said, I think you better work on getting a different one. She said, because you need somebody that you can turn all this over to. And I thought, well, I said, God, I've been raised with that. I didn't think you had a choice. And she said, that's what we mean, God, as we understood, understand him. Close your eyes and just picture the most wonderful, just pretend, you know, just imagine whatever the most wonderful higher power you could have. And then immediately I saw this vision of, Jesus Christ Superstar. Remember him? You remember him? In the, and it kind of looked like that God as uh, in the Bible with the little kids. And that, that to me is what Jesus Christ Superstar looked like with the long hair and the white gown and, and all of that. And the thought that came to me was that little thing in the, in the Bible, because I'm Catholic, so I never read the Bible, but I did see the picture in there, and um, of all the little children coming up to him. And sitting on his knee. And I thought, oh, if I could have a higher power that would not criticize me, whose job was to be my friend, and had the power to be my friend and to help me, and would lift me up when I fell down, pick me up and Brush me off like, you know, like your parents would do. When you fell down, they'd pick you up and put you on the lap and say, it's all okay. And then push you out there to go again. That's the kind of higher power I wanted. And that's that kind of higher power I could turn my will and my life over to with complete abandon. And I would never, ever be alone. No matter what. And um, who was it said one time, George, you know, you, uh, at some conference he went to, because he comes home and tells me all this stuff, and he said, uh, you can't piss God off. 
what a wonderful thing to know. You know, you can't fit them all. And that's terrific. That's terrific. So that I once I found the joy of the oven, higher power that I could embrace and that I knew was taking care of me, I was on the on the road. And uh uh Somewhere along the line, in the first three years of sobriety, I thought, well, I'm getting this divorce, and I'm going to have to take care of these children because this Joe that I was married to has now lost all his money and is just not helping at all. And I couldn't really depend on him to, to help us. He was just, uh, had gotten into a bit of a slump. And, <laughs> and, uh, but to tell you the truth about Joe is Joe, it was, uh, I loved him, and he was my my high school sweetheart, but we just, I couldn't live with him and be sober. Not that he drank so much in it, you know, I mean, we, when I came to the program, we immediately got rid of all the stuff. It's just that emotionally, I couldn't tolerate it. I couldn't be in that relationship and be sober, and oh, actually, and not drink. I had realized I had to drink to stand it. And uh, so I, they said, you can't do anything for the, for the first year. So uh, 36 days into my, 366 days into my sobriety, I told George, Joe, Joe, she's, Joe, I wanted a divorce. And uh, we began that, that thing. And then I went off to treatment. And when I came home, he was gone. And I had left the house. And... Uh, I was really relieved. But then I had these children I needed to take care of. And so I thought, well, I can't do this on on accountant's salary. Um, I better go to, back to school. So I thought, I'll just go to law school. And because they make so much money, those lawyers do. And, um, and, and I have to, you know, I have to work so much as an accountant that I think this would be better and I'll make more money and, um, so then I applied and got in and all that. And, uh, for, the thing with being a lawyer is like this jumping from the frying pan into the fire. Talk about a lot more hours and sometimes less money. So it's, uh, wasn't all that great of a decision, but it was a wonderful, um, it was a wonderful thing. All I had to do was convince my father that uh, my first case I won was with my dad. So that he would pay for all of this. See? <laughs> And he did. My father, um, my father sent me, uh, back to law school and paid for, uh, apartments for my, my daughter and I and took care of us. And, um, uh, so at the age of 40, I, uh, graduated from law school with two children. I was the grandma of the class. <laughs> and I remember I went to law school and I thought, Oh God, these kids are all young. And they don't have kids, and they're also smart. And I don't know if I'm going to be able to keep up because I really have memory loss. I mean, I had typical alcoholic memory loss. And um, how am I going to be able to keep up with this? And uh, I'm so worried, so afraid. I was just, I just couldn't do it. And the first semester was just hell. I mean, it was just everybody really studies the first semester in law school, and and at the end, you, it all kind of strains you figure out if you're gonna. After the first semester, I realized I'm not going to be in the top. I'm not going to be the top person in this class. So I decided to relax, and also met at law school a girl whose name also was Suzanne. I'm just, don't you think that's strange? And Sir Suzanne, 
and she said she was in AA and she was a year ahead of me and she did leave the class. She was number one in that law school class and she was about my age, a little bit, right about my age and she had a son and I had not met her before I got there but she introduced herself and she said, you only need to remember three things. She said, Suzanne, uh, go to the classes and read the books and don't drink. And you'll make it. She said, your obsessive compulsive alcoholics always do well in law school. And she was right. We did. But you know what also happened to me in law school? A most rigid, uh, law school's very hard. And, um, or it was for me. And uh, a lot of studying, a lot of reading. And I learned to do something then that was so wonderful. I learned to take it a day at a time. I really learned to live a day at a time. So I want you to know I enjoyed every day of law school. I loved it. I had a chance to, I had a wonderful rapport with my teachers. Uh, I'm older, and so they're older, so we all kind of got along, you know. And all these other kids that I thought were definitely going to beat me out of this whole thing, I wasn't ever going to, you know, they're all out wanting to get drunk and get laid. And I thought, <laughs> what an advantage I had over these kids. <laughs> Plus, you know something, if any of you ladies are thinking about going back to school, I learned a lot of stuff I didn't even know I knew. I didn't know I was learning these things, and uh, just life, and just being alive and around and alert, and you learn a lot of stuff, and it comes and it comes in so handy. So, anyway, three years this Friday, Laura and Anna and I got in the car, and off we went to Morgantown to go to law school, and had a wonderful, uh, a wonderful experience there. We all had our own first day at school, so we were all nervous wrecks. And Anna was in the third grade, and uh, Laura was in, in junior high, seventh grade, and I was in school, and, and law school. And so, like I said, we all had three days, but they were wonderful. And my daughters were wonderful. And um, I, um, I found out, however, that um, I was a rageaholic, like my father. And when I quit drinking, I had nothing to dampen it down. And so, I mean, there was lots of screaming and yelling when I went through uh, when I went through school, which I regret. I have a lot of regrets about things that have happened. Some regrets about things that have happened since I got sober. I've had a lot of things happen to me in sobriety. Um, one of the most wonderful and important things that has happened to me is that after that first year of law school, I married this uh, man that I met in the program, and uh, he was not boring. <laughs> uh, I think y'all can tell I have I kind of overcorrected on that the boring thing. And we fought a lot. We fought a whole lot those first few years. I guess maybe too stubborn Irish alcoholics lawyers have got a real challenge to find a way to meet somewhere in the middle. And uh but um I'll try to say this without crying. Um what a gift. What a tremendous gift. And I never knew at the time how wonderful it would be. All the things I'd ever dreamed of in a relationship with a man, Prince Charming, all those things I found in uh with George. And uh he has been there for me 
so much. We just went to Ireland and um, getting ahead of my story a little bit. But obviously, you can tell I have a mess and I have problems. And uh, we were 17 days. We went all over Ireland. And uh, little things. I couldn't get in the tubs because they're real steep. So to get in it, I mean, he had to help me in the tub, help me get settled, help the water go, and then get me out after my shower. Help me dress. He um, helps me walk. He um, he keeps my spirits up. And, um, you know, one day that we were in one of these meetings in um, Ireland, they they often they the way they do their meetings they'll have two people cheering, one person sort of running the show and another person to come and give a short like a little mini lead, and George was asked several times. Uh, he's kind of an imposing character, so I see this yank coming in. They want to yeah they want him to help. So about three or four times he actually helped cheer, and this last time we were in West Westport kind of a second to last night in Ireland. And he he helped to chair and told his story. They're so wonderful over there. They say, ah, oh, George, it was just lovely listening to you out there. <laughs> and, he just, and they're so majestic in their language. It's just grand. It's just grand to see you. Or, I mean, they just have this, this wonderful way of expressing themselves. And um, this one girl was sitting right next to me, and she's about 25 probably, and she she said she was telling me about something she was working on. She said I got to get a sponsor. I mean, same stuff we hear here. And um, and then she looked at George and she said, you know, it's so wonderful to look at that with all those years, 20 years of sobriety, and that big white beard, and a Mickey Mouse watch. <laughs> <laughs> and she said, the hope. She said that gives me so much hope. That I can, and that's what's uh, what's really happened to me in Alcoholics Anonymous is I found so much hope every day, and you all do it for me. I um, um I never know what I'm going to say when I get up here, and I um, there's a lot of things I'd like to say, and I run out of time, but um, I I want to tell you about the MS. Um, the uh, I got out, graduated from law school. And the next year I was diagnosed with MS. Well, I felt like that was a pretty crappy deal. I said, look, God, I've already got this one disease, this one biggie, the big A. You know, I've got the alcoholism. Um, I really felt, I felt real cheated. And, um, but I learned from, remember my, my sponsor, Betsy, she helped me a lot with that. And she helped me over the years. In the beginning, I wasn't I wasn't nearly as sick as I am now. I mean, I could function. I just had, I could feel certain problems like weaknesses coming and that sort of thing. But I was still pretty functional, and I actually got to practice law for about 10 years full time. I don't think you ever quit. I don't know how you ever quit. I'm trying to, but I'm not doing such a hot job. We have our office in our home now. And George and I have uh, been practicing together. I had a dream come true there. George has been practicing um, trial law for over 40 years, and it's magnificent. I mean, if anybody y'all heard him last night, you can imagine him making an argument before a jury. <laughs> He's wonderful and a uh, compassionate man. Uh, helps so many people that are ill 
and needs someone. I have watched him help people um, so many times. And um, it's just absolute marvelous thing to say, to watch somebody, watch him take someone's life, someone who has done some hard thing, maybe, and help them figure a way to uh, reconcile it and get the help they need and make the appropriate plea and work on sensi. There's not been any try to get somebody off on a technicality. There's been how can we help this person through this particular problem if it's a criminal action or um, we often work, we work with a lot of people who have been injured and um, this program is wonderful there. And um, that love and care that, that we learn to share to each other, we can share in our work. Anyway, I um, was diagnosed with MS and um, have uh, had such really, it sounds silly, wonderful experiences because I have MS. I was always aloof and very shy. And um, so when you know when you're like that, you tend to be, you tend to push people away. Or sort of just put up a wall where you're, where you're, you're not real warm and, cause you don't want to get rejected and you're, and you don't want people to ignore you or whatever it is if you have that sense of, uh, sense about you. But MS has done something for me. Um, for some reason, when you, when you need help, obviously need help physically, people will just come up to you and put their arm around you and help you. They don't ask. If they can do it, they just are there. And um, I learned so, so fast that here, I mean, uh, at this conference we did up in California, people, I mean, they just had their arms out the whole time. People have offered me help constantly. And um, I learned that uh, with you, I can just, I mean, I can't walk from here to there without you, but with you I can. And, and that's been so true in so many ways with the MS. I mean, can you imagine to have those things happen and um, find a way to be grateful? I mean, I'm not grateful all the time, but I have a lot of moments of seeing where there's some, some purpose in that in my life. And believe me, working with injured people, God, we've got a rapport. I understand. I understand what's happening to them, and um, I um, that's been a gift in itself. Uh, I'm now surrounded by people that I can love and that love me. I'll tell you about my daughters very quickly. Laura's the older one, and she, um, I remember the first time I really noticed something was wrong. I tried to pick up a full coffee pot of Mr. Coffee Pot, my hand just really shook like this because the muscles would were weak. And I looked at her and I said, she was sitting there at the ta- kitchen table, and I said, would you look at that, damn it. I can't even pour a cup of coffee. And Laura says, Mom, now MS isn't all that bad. And I said, well, you just tell me one good thing about MS. Just tell me one good thing. This is like in the beginning. So sweet little Laura, she's about 14 or 15 then. And she thinks and she thinks and she says, now you're one of Jerry's kids. 
I didn't have the heart to tell her that's muscular dystrophy. Not but my children have been so wonderful. In my vulnerability, they have, they have, I don't have to be strong anymore because I can't. Uh, and they're so good to me. So good to me. We went through all those teenage years of just hating each other and kicking and fighting and But we've gotten through it. We've gotten through it. And um, my daughter, um, I gotta tell you one. I got time. I gotta tell you one more thing real quick. Um, I have all these humiliating. I can tell you stories and all the humiliating experience in my life. But and I kind of think that's going to be over when you quit drinking and you, know, you can be a lady and a part of the time. And um, uh, we had a really funny experience in uh, California. And uh California shit. Ireland, excuse me. And um we went to this meeting with MS you end up with a really weak bladder, so you always have to be check out where are the bathrooms, you know. And they especially they serve tea, you know, and they really expect you to drink the tea and you know how diuretic tea is. And so um uh like I said, you always kinda of check out where the bathrooms are. So we went to this meeting and um <laughs> In Blarney, you know where Blarney Castle is. I don't let him kiss the Blarney Stone anymore. He's done it twice. I think that's enough. Um, the uh, so we went to this meeting and it was in a like an old community center and down a huge flight of stairs. And we went in. They were teaching karate. I didn't expect to see karate lessons being taught in Ireland, but they I guess they're just as modern as anywhere else. So we went down. When, as soon as you go in, they go downstairs. They just knew if we're wandering around, that's what we must want. So I went down, and down in the basement of this place is this um, meeting room. And uh, as you, it's a very small room, and it's packed with these guys, and one woman over in the corner, and these Irish men. And um, I'm not sure said they're all, they're really shy and, and sort of retiring and um, uh, don't, don't always reveal themselves, you know, right away. So just, in the beginning, you just kind of you have to ease into a meeting like that and let them get to know you. Well, about it was running over. The meetings run a long time, so sort of over an hour later, I need to use the restroom. So I just kind of quietly got up and I was going to go outside to use the restroom. Well, now at this point, I mean, I need to use the restroom. <laughs> It was an emergency, and um, I love Peggy's description of that. Not I have to go to the bathroom, but oh, excuse me, <laughs> that was so funny. I never forget that. And anyway, so I, I went outside, and the man that was sitting next to me kind of followed me out, and he said, uh, can, "Can I help you?" And I said, "I was just looking for the toilet. They don't call them restrooms there; they call them toilets." And um, I was looking for the toilet, and he said, "Oh, it's in the room." I said, the meeting room? Which wasn't very big. He said, yeah, it's right back there. And he pointed to the thing I thought was a closet. Closet door. And, uh, well, I haven't got a choice now. I mean, it's like, like I said, it's either the floor or the room. And um, so I thought, oh, God, this is terrible. I wanted to leave. But anyway, I, I walked back in, and all these guys had gotten up and moved all their chairs over so that I could then go in this little room and I'm 
I'm so, I'm going, what am I going to do? I can't do this. And I thought, i got to do this. So I went in, I went in this room, and I closed the door, and I went, oh, my God, oh my God. they're all going to hear me going to the bathroom. <laughs> and um, so I thought, oh, I'll just flush the toilet while I'm doing this. And so I kind of covered it. But then I thought, they all heard me flushing the toilet, you know. <laughs> Oh, God. So I had to get up and go out. And then these, these kind, sweet, gentle Irishmen just moved everything back, got out of the way again, helped me back to my seat. And this continued on with the meeting. And I thought, that's the most embarrassing experience I have ever had. <laughs> and I, I laughed at my kids. And I'm telling Laura this. Uh, when we got home, I talked to her on the phone. I said, you will not believe what happened to me at a meeting. So I'm telling her that. And she says, Laura style, well, Mom, you could have had to go number two and had a lot of gas. <laughs> and she said they'd have all heard that. And I went, oh, God. <laughs> Always telling me that things are going to be okay. Yeah. <laughs> Always. What a wonderful child. Where did she get that? You know, I don't know where she got that. And my youngest daughter went off to call it brilliant, brilliant daughter. And she went off to, um, she was, uh, she's got an operatic voice. She plays the flute. She was in, in our local ballet and just a real overachiever. Went off to school the first year, discovered pot, quit that school, then went up to Boston and discovered hard drugs. And, um, for some ungodly reason, she, after a year, she's come home and she's, she's okay. For some reason, it didn't take for her. But she had a struggle getting adjusted and all of that. But she's back now and she's, uh, she's just the light of my life. The thing I really wanted when I came here to be a good mother has happened for me. Not only am I a good mother, I'm a good friend. And they are wonderful teachers for me. They've expanded my concept of God to the universe. Just as you have in your little thing that you read your, your statement, you say we are now part of the universe and we walk through the universe together. My concept of God is so much bigger. God is everywhere. God is in the trees and the earth and every single person in this room. And Steve, I guess we did it. Did we do it? Thank you all so much for having us here.